one year of Joe Biden. In this episode, we have a stellar cast who are going to be examining President Biden's first year. Some of you may remember our earlier episodes last year where we discussed Joe Biden's first 100 days. In keeping with tradition, we have brought back the same guests, but this time we've assembled them together uh, for what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion. Co-hosting this event with me, we have our very own Phoebe Sullivan. Our guests include Michael Shertoff, who was the United States Secretary of Homeland Security, serving under George W. Bush. General Robert Spaulding, who was the Senior Director for Strategic Planning at the White House. And Robert Zulik, who was the 11th President of the World Bank. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I, I want to give each of you a couple of minutes to give a brief overview on what your thoughts on the Biden's first year before we go into detail and um, some of the more pressing topics. So maybe we can start with Michael Shertoff, then go to General Spaulding, and then finally Robert Zulik. Surely. Well, if I was going to pick a single word <clears throat> to describe the first year for President Biden, it would be eventful. In virtually every area, there were major challenges. There was the ongoing pandemic, which is still with us, although hopefully it's beginning to wind down. <clears throat> there were issues involving climate disasters and, and uh, other kinds of natural disasters. There was the challenge of dealing with withdrawing from Afghanistan. And then most notably these days is the question of whether Russia and how do we protect Ukraine and our allies in Europe and in other parts of the world. Any one of these would have been a major challenge for an incoming president. All of them together really required uh, simply juggling balls that were on fire and dealing with each of them uh, in a timely fashion. I think it's made it a stressful year, uh, but as I said, a very eventful year. Well, and uh, I would I would echo that sentiment. I I think one of the things the uh, Biden administration inherited was a declining um, leadership role of the United States and certainly the free world in uh, the institutions of the uh, of the West, uh, particularly things like uh, you know liberty and rule of law. We've seen a, a consistent decline in civil liberties uh, over that year. Uh, a, a coming or a fracturing of the social cohesion and democracies. And I think this is entirely consistent with the authoritarian regime's misuse of data. Uh, they're pressuring on the uh, global financial system, the global economic system, the, the global um, you know, geopolitical system, like institutions like the UN, uh, World Trade Organization, the World Bank. I think they're all coming under pressure from authoritarian regimes that are emboldened by um, the use of, you know, data and finance as a tool of, you know, that they didn't have really during the Cold War. And so I think it's a really interesting time, uh, but also a very dangerous time for, for um, free societies around the world. And so um, just to add to it, um, as, as Michael said, I, I think Biden began with a absolutely huge domestic agenda. And probably the most important issues to his success as a president were taming COVID and the economic recovery. So since Phoebe is a Ronald Reagan fan, um, I'll recall a story. My former boss, James Baker, was chief of staff to Reagan in 1981. And he said, Mr. President, you have three priorities, economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. So for Biden, it was a question 
pandemic and economic recovery. And I think the results so far are uncertain. Um, they relied heavily on the vaccines that were just coming out um, and focused on the distribution. They didn't invest in, in some of the backup investments uh, for treatments and testing. And like in Britain now, there's a certain uh, fatigue that's crept in at the same time we're still de dealing with the variants. The economic recovery has been very strong, uh, but inflation is quite high. And I think the Federal Reserve risks being caught behind uh, the curve on inflation and with the effective interest rates in markets. Um, a natural foreign policy agenda for Biden would have been to focus on transnational issues that built on some of that domestic agenda. And here, I think, again, it's been mixed. Um, they were slow to assume international leadership on COVID. Um, during the transition, I suggested they look at the Bush 43 example of PEPFAR with HIV AIDS, perhaps even ask President Bush and President, former President Obama to be co-chairs of it. Um, the key there is not only to focus on the vaccines, but the distribution system where the US would have been uniquely uh, placed to help. On immigration, the Biden administration wanted to distinguish itself from Trump, uh, but they also wanted to deter people from coming in. And that's been a confused uh, message that I think creates political vulnerabilities. And on climate, um, I think former Secretary Kerry and Senator Kerry tried to steer towards some progress, but uh, now there's the challenge of follow through and to make any significant headway on this, the US and China have to figure out some way to work together. I do think they've made some headway in repairing some of the damage to alliances under President Trump. I think the AUKUS arrangement with Australia and the UK uh, is, could be very important beyond the submarine issue to the question of defense technology cooperation. I think the Quad is significant, not, uh, not expecting India to be an alliance partner, which it won't, uh, but it also can be an actor in the process. Um, as Michael mentioned, I think the Afghan withdrawal was poorly handled. I think they were taken by surprise. I think they've tried to learn some lessons from that in their preparations for Ukraine. But I think one of the issues we'll face going ahead is retreats are always the most dangerous maneuvers, as the general would know. And whether it's military or diplomatic, that's gonna be a problem for uh, the Biden administration because they not only have the Ukraine issue, the Afghan legacy, but also what comes out of the Iranian nuclear negotiations. And, Whatever they do there, people are going to be unhappy. So there'll be a sense of that. Um, on Russia and Ukraine, I think um, they've managed the alliance relations, including with Britain, I think relatively well to try to bring people together. Uh, but Putin has the initiative. And so the West is somewhat on the defensive. None of us are sure exactly what will, will be done. Um, if there is an invasion, and that does seem to be the view of the intelligence community here, uh, this is going to have multiple effects on energy markets, interest rates, inflation, um, likely cyber responses, which Michael will know very, very well. Um, and then I think the larger challenge for the administration is that um, the international economy is still going to be very important, particularly in the Asia Pacific. And that's an area where the administration has been somewhat stalled. Uh, Frankly, I and others have suggested in the case of the UK that we could have taken the USMCA, the, the NAFTA rewrite as sort of a framework to do something with the United Kingdom. Um, you could, uh, while I think the smartest thing would be for the US to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership, if that isn't possible politically, I and others have talked about the idea of a digital accord. 
But the Biden administration politically is somewhat hamstrung by the progressive protectionists and some of the union supporters. They don't want to be seen as uh, helping business or technology. And I think that's going to handicap them over time. And then this brings us really to the core issue, which is that um, the failure to really develop a China policy. Um, they declared that engagement has failed, but it's not quite so clear uh, what they have in mind other than confrontation. In some ways they've followed the momentum from Trump. Um, we just had a report about the Trump trade package, which produced absolutely zero, as many of us forecast it would. So it creates a question of you know, where will the United States go uh, on, on these issues? Um, and I think one of the issues then, as we think about the future, is Harold McMillan had this sort of wonderful comment after he was reelected prime minister, said, you know, what are your plans for the future? And he said, events, dear boy, events. And while I've never totally liked that as a comment, I think uh, looking into the second year of the Biden administration, we've got some serious events uh, going out there that will determine the future. One ironic observation is that um, if Biden lose, if the Democrats lose the House in our midterm elections in November, that would be the guess today, uh, it'll be even harder to get things done domestically. And given the types of things we've talked about in the international scene, you could see Biden pushed more towards his international agenda in the next couple of years. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think you've single-handedly answered many of the questions that I had written down. Um, but something that, that struck out for me certainly was the China policy. And I wanna talk um, just, just for a moment about the, the battle of the brands um, and the totalitarian direction that China has taken, uh, shifting away from foreign policy and, and diplomacy um, and extended its, its international influence, um, something that we've spoken a few times um, at, at, on the CFOC platform, certainly about um, propaganda and cultural diplomacy and surveillance and, and everything that, that, that China is doing that is not going through diplomatic routes. Um, compared to the, the Western tone of um, you know, democratic discourses around the world, so I, my, my question really is, what is China's pulling power these days? Um, not so much for its allies, but more for the vast swathe of countries around the world that, that don't fit into either camp um, or those that might play one camp off the other. Um, and, and just, you know, what is the current state of play that China, you know, China's pulling power really is? Well, let, me, let me go first. Um, and I begin by just observing the difference between China and Russia as a rival. China is, a, in my view, a long-term formidable strategic rival because it has a whole panoply of tools it can use to exert its influence around the world, not just military power, but uh, cyber power, economic power, and the willingness to leverage its attractiveness as a market in order to promote and actually coerce uh, uh, companies from other parts of the world into playing ball with the Chinese Communist Party line. The Russians don't have that kind of long-term strategic capability. What they are is a military power that's largely dependent upon uh, it's the oil prices in order to prop up its economy. But in the long term, people aren't clamoring to get into Russia as a market to buy or sell unless they want to buy vodka. So the Chinese play, I think, a much more strategic and subtle game. And I sometimes say that as Americans, we're playing checkers and they're playing go. We tend to view geopolitical challenge as one that's principally military, 
uh, and also may involve some aid, but the Chinese view their economic power and their market as a critical element in achieving a paramount position among world powers. Uh, they, for example, build infrastructure in the Southern hemisphere, which in some cases gives them quite a bit of control, including the ability, at least in one instance I know of, to actually use the infrastructure to steal uh, data and, pro and intellectual property that can be of value to them back home. Uh, they, they are willing to use uh, their economic power and their market position to drive, for example, companies into removing references to Taiwan. Just recently, when Lithuania opened up uh, the equivalent of an embassy in Taiwan, not only did the Chinese retaliate directly against Lithuania, but told other European countries not to buy products from Lithuania as part of a retaliation. So the willingness to use all of these tools, I think, makes them much more formidable. And what I do think the Biden administration has recognized and is beginning to seriously focus on is how do we counterbalance that, among other things, by building supply chain alternatives to Chinese uh, products and infrastructure? Um, how do we work to counterbalance what the Chinese are doing in other parts of the, of the world, including the Southern Hemisphere? And frankly, experience shows that if Americans do get involved in helping Southern Hemisphere countries develop, promote health, and do other things which benefit the public, it has a tremendous positive value in terms of America's influence and image in those parts of the world. It's what Joe and I called soft power. And I've heard myself from talking to migrants from Africa that they regard, for example, the anti-malaria and anti-AIDS efforts the US promoted in Africa as something they still cherish and feel grateful for. So I think we need to broaden the playing field in dealing with China. What, um, you know, what I think about um, when I consider, um, you know, what Reagan had to work with uh, when he was president was the idea of American soft power. And it really hinged on two things. One was prosperity. So the average person was better off economically in the West than they were in, uh, in the Soviet Union. And quite frankly, the loss of our manufacturing base, the the lack of investment in infrastructure, the lack of investment in science and technology instead of education in the West has contributed to this sense over the last 30 years that people are better off in China than they are uh, in the West. And so we've lost that part of soft power. The other part of soft power that was uh, particularly endearing to, um, to people of the Soviet Union uh, and the Soviet states was the idea of individual liberty. And what we've seen over the last two years is the decline of individual liberty as the, a result of the adoption of many of the same policies that China has uh, with regard to how we deal with the coronavirus, none of which were uh, recommendations of the CDC prior to uh, lockdowns in Wuhan in, in, in 2020. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that, that the Biden administration has to confront is this loss of soft power, because fundamentally, it appears to you know, many citizens that are of countries that aren't aligned, that maybe China has a better economic model. And when you have, um, you know, uh, Putin basically calling Justin Trudeau a tyrant because of the policies uh, that have been enacted in Canada, then you've then you've lost some more high ground ground with regard to individual liberty. And so I think the question remains is how do we recapture this idea uh, of Western institutions as much better for the individual person because 
they are more prosperous and they have more individual liberty. And I think that's going to take a couple of things. One is going to take investing in those things that I talked about that we haven't invested in over the 30 years. Um, the infrastructure bill is, is a start, but it's not quite sufficient to really recapture that. And then on civil liberties, we're really going to have to fundamentally tackle data and, how, and especially the misuse of data, not just by um, U.S. corporations or multinational corporations, but in particular uh, totalitarian regimes like China, who, which seeks to you know, leverage that for social you know, cohesion, you know, creating problems for social cohesion and uh, political independence and sovereignty. So I, I think really you know, the things that Reagan had, Biden administration no longer has, and they need to quickly figure out how they uh, recapture that ideological high ground. So let me just uh, compliment these by saying, um, you know, economists, there's a notion of economic gravity. Um, and we have to keep in mind, geography is important. So uh, to compete with China across East Asia or the Indo-Pacific, the United States has to be in the game. Um, and that goes to the point that I've mentioned, whether Trans-Pacific Partnership, Digital Accords, or other frameworks. Um, the dual circulation idea out of Beijing has two elements. One is to try to increase reliance on China's domestic market, an old idea of self-strengthening, but it also has the idea of how to leverage uh, China's market, as, as Michael talked about, to try to influence others. Um, the Biden administration has talked about coming up with a, uh, a sort of a set of proposals for East Asian economy. Um, the challenge will be how much is rhetorical and how much is action. Uh, they've been reluctant for the protectionist reasons I've mentioned to talk about market access in the United States. And that's frankly what people in the region uh, want. Second, um, on this point about soft power, I guess I have a slightly different perspective. I, I think that Xi Jinping and the Chinese have overplayed this. I think the wolf warrior diplomacy has actually been counterproductive. Uh, I have a long list of countries that they've tried to bully, you know, from Australia to, it wasn't quite United Kingdom. I think Vietnam was at the bottom. So, but there's about 10 or 12 in between um, along the way. And this, this could be actually one of the effects of, of COVID on diplomacy. I mean, and you see this, I think, both in Russia and in China. Um, look, in our countries, as you know, the political leaders are still exposed to an awful lot of debate. Uh, if you look at Putin, he's got a relatively small circle of people that he talks to. And I'm not sure what information he gets about uh, other points of view. I think this has happened somewhat in China, too. And by the way, I think one of the issues that China is going to face in 2022 is the nature of their their shutdown because of COVID puts them in a very difficult position. At some point, you're going to have to open up the economy again. You see this in the challenge with Hong Kong. And unless you've got a better vaccination system than they have, and unless you start to get uh, some of the people that have developed some of the immunities, that's going to be a challenge for them in terms of opening up the economy. As for the, the U.S., I, I think, frankly, we're still in a transition phase here. Uh, my friend Evan Feigenbaum at the Carnegie Endowment was the first to say, I think U.S. has more of an attitude than a policy. Uh, we, there's lots of things we don't like, uh, and we're kind of, uh, uh, there's sort of a confrontational model. Um, I think to the credit, I think the focus on alliance relationships, restoring some of the relations with Japan and Korea, as I mentioned, the AUKUS arrangement, the Quad, those are important steps. But when you talk about competition, which is kind of the latest idea here, 
I, I still have to ask myself, what does it mean by winning? What are the real objectives that we want to have here through some combination of deterrence, certainly on the military side, uh, managing differences and disputes on uh, other aspects. Uh, but frankly, if you look at China and the world economy, you're not going to be able to contain it, as some people do. We're going to need to have a different framework than we'd had in the Cold War about dealing with an authoritarian power. And coming back to the general's point a little bit, um, I think one of the dangers we have to watch out for is trying to compete with China using China's methods. So the United States' strengths, and frankly, Britain's strength, is its openness. Its openness as a society to ideas, to people, to goods, to capital. Uh, that's what distinguishes us. And we have to be a little careful in dealing with China that we don't shut down things that are ultimately going to be, I think, our strength. I personally suspect that uh, some of the steps that Xi Jinping's taken with the economy are going to cause trouble this year. You can see this in different signs. But I also think that for this year, his focus is on the party Congress later in November. And so actually, this is interesting. I'm not so sure the Chinese are so keen on what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, because I don't think they want to have an unstable international economic system, because for Xi, the prime objective is getting his third and probably perpetual term. Again, quite a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I think the soft power uh, in Joe Biden has been mentioned quite a bit in the UK. I, there's been, I think, a fair amount of comparisons with Joe Biden and, and, and Jimmy Carter, which I think we can maybe explore a, a bit later on. Um, I, I want to touch on the infrastructure bill. Um, you've all sort of mentioned about that. I think in the UK, some of us will be aware that um, the infrastructure bill was signed in November last year. Um, we saw, you know, quite astounding amounts of um, money being sort of thrown towards um, stuff from bridges, roads to national broadband, water, energy. I, I want to get your take on specifically that bill and some of the things that you maybe liked about it or some things you're not so keen, just a sort of general uh, overview on, on the infrastructure bill. Well, you know, I can just say for myself, I really, um, I, I really think that we needed to pay a lot more attention to the protection of data, data sovereignty, privacy, uh, critical infrastructure, crit critical digital infrastructure than we did. I do agree that, um, you know, uh, uh, the civil engineers, American Society of Civil en Engineers rate uh, American infrastructure grade of D plus, and that's because of the lack of investment over the last 30 years. But you know, um, that it also, it belies the fact that, you know, digital, the digital world has become much more a part of the fabric of daily lives. And I would argue is actually essential to, um, to life and liberty uh, in the future. And so really focusing on how we should think differently about uh, digital infrastructure, um, both in terms of how we build it, but then all we, how we build in the protections or data protections for individual liberty into that infrastructure should have been, I think, far more um, seriously considered. In cybersecurity, I think they devoted something like $120 million of the, of the $1.2 trillion. So we're talking about a, a completely different world um, that, we're, that we're going into. The competition is not relegated just to the battlefield. We're going to see that play out in Europe. We're going to see it play out in Asia. But ultimately, I believe, you know, the presence of nuclear weapons is going to dissuade 
uh, direct conflict between the United States and, and Ch China or Russia if they do move. Um, but what's going to continue to happen is we're going to see competition in the data sphere and we're going to see competition economically and financially. And to the extent that we're not prepared to protect the, uh, the, the sovereignty of data uh, in, in free societies, I think we're going to be severely impacted in terms of our ability to promote social cohesion, political independence and sovereignty, because much more so than territory today, data matters. Kai-Fu Lee, you know, the, the artificial intelligence guru for China, you know, believes that, you know, China's goal uh, is to become the Saudi Arabia of data. Why is that? Well, it's because it fuels artificial intelligence and that artificial intelligence gives them the power to know and then respond using algorithms that, that can influence behavior. We've seen that through our own Silicon Valley tech companies. So we have to think a little bit differently about national security in terms of what we prioritize. And I think the infrastructure bill could have gone a long ways to doing that. I would just add, I know this never happens in Britain, but in the United States, a lot depends on how you spend it. <laughs> and so these are large sums of money. Uh, infrastructure projects uh, across history uh, can sometimes involve some substantial waste. Um, there are a lot of provisions there that are designed to serve particular constituencies, uh, including sort of the, the unions that are important to Biden's political base. Uh, they, the administration brought in a man named Landrew from, from Louisiana to try to sort of got to, to over sort of see this effort. I think it's important, uh, you know, supported the effort. It's a good example of where if, if properly done bipartisanship can uh, achieve a good goal. Historically, from my experience in the government, if you're willing to spend large sums of money, it's easier to bring people together. But then the question really does come down to how we spend it. And that's still an open question. Is the general sort of consensus then you, you feel maybe it was a step in the right direction, but more could have been done? Is that a fair kind of summary for the infrastructure bill? For my I personal say, opinion, yes. Sorry. I, I would say it's a step. More needs to be done. Sometimes you can't do everything at once. Um, I would agree that we ought to look in particular to the cyber arena as an area for further investment, among other things. We need to really rebuild our capability for building some of the basic hardware, which is necessary in order to deploy 5G and 6G and other kinds of infrastructure that support our use of the internet. Because we've discovered that we've been uh, to an, uh, perhaps a reckless degree dependent on components made in China and the pandemic uh, underscored the fact that that supply chain is a vulnerability, both in terms of people trying to exploit it and in terms of being cut off from necessary components. So I do think uh, the US, Britain, other Western nations need to make sure we are building a market, an alternative market for firms that can provide hardware and software that are the backbone of the internet so that we're not dependent on what is being produced in China. So to, to help you in Britain have a sense of some of the ongoing issues in the US, um, the Congress right now is looking at a um, science and technology competition bill um, that is the Senate. The House passed a version that threw almost everything possible in it, including a lot of protectionism. Um, that may be one of the pieces of legislation that does get done this year still. Um, 
And, uh, but it raises, in a sense, the policy issues that you've heard from Michael and Robert here. Uh, one, it started out um, under the notion of um, going back to something, a man named Van Ever Bush, uh, who I included a chapter in my book about sort of investment in basic scientific technology and research. Uh, but then people decided they also wanted to subsidize uh, other areas. And so these are various types of industrial policy, including in the semiconductor sector. Um, this gets you into a trickier space. Um, you know, are you going to decide that the government can decide where these investments should go as opposed to science and research? To what degree are you, um, in a sense, subsidizing companies that should, should compete? And then, uh, and then there's a series of provisions that are added on the House side that I don't think will survive uh, that would actually limit U.S. investments overseas, which I don't think would be very effective actually for U.S. companies, which will be the drivers of innovation in the United States as opposed to a state-driven sector. But so that piece of legislation would be useful to watch to see how it develops and whether there's a science and technology infrastructure or digital infrastructure element that complements the first bill, which I think was probably more of a potpourri of sort of traditional uh, infrastructure, whether, um, you know, roads, railroads, airports, water, uh, and some in the energy space. We have, um, in, in the UK, we uh, last month had a new publisher of a white paper, which is the Leveling Up Agenda, the Leveling Up White Paper, which also discusses uh, innovation and research and development investment. Um, albeit not so much on the, the cybersecurity side of things. It does, it does seem that China has been doing this for, for an awful long time uh, ahead of the curve, something that they put an, an awful lot, a lot amount of investment into. Um, and it does just seem that the West uh, seems to be uh, trying, constantly trying to catch up uh, rather than get ahead of the curve um, on a number of cybersecurity fronts. My my kind of my question on on that really um, is that go, going back to the kind of influence that that Biden can have um, and whether he's doing enough at this time or and there is an opportunity to get ahead of the curve um, or whether it'll be this continuous flow um, of of trying to combat rather than um, be as uh, on the forefront and proactive as possible. Well, I think you're asking, I mean, there are really a couple of dimensions to that question, Phoebe. One is just in terms of defensive technologies and, and capabilities, mm. you know, where are we and where do we need to be? And the answer is it's a dynamic process. You can never rest. You're always going to have new challenges and new vectors of attack. One of the, thing, the things the administration is doing it is, is it's trying to incentivize or even mandate that more and more private companies work with the government in order to disclose when there's an attack, in order to share information about attackers, and in order to demonstrate that they have the capability to respond, not in a way that's perfect, but in a way that mitigates the damage. But I think the second part of your question really has to do with <clears throat> what is sometimes called active defense. Are we merely in a position of playing, for example, the goalie in a football match, where we're waiting for people to kick the ball and we want to knock them down, or do we sometimes take the ball into the other guy's uh, part of the, of the arena? And that raises some challenging issues about deterrence and response and how do we escalate but not escalate too much, meaning we want to make 
there be a price if particularly if a nation state either encourages or allows its agents or its criminal groups to attack us, we want them to pay something of a price, but we don't want to get to the point that we wind up actually precipitating a war, <clears throat> which could result in loss of life. So we need to calibrate our menu of responses based upon the nature of the attacks we're dealing with. I would say, for example, <clears throat> stealing data and intellectual property warrants what I would call a civil response, meaning you might impose sanctions, you might sue people, you might uh, remove licenses from foreign companies that you stole in property. If you had an attack on critical infrastructure that resulted in the loss of life, you might regard that as more of an, an act of a conflict, if not a war. And then you might respond more vigorously. You might attack the infrastructure of the attacking nation. Uh, you might even get involved in something kinetic. And I think this is still, just as in the, in the early years after the atomic bomb, we needed to really put our heads together and come up with a model of deterrence. I think this is very much on the minds of people, I think, in the administration and outside the administration as we speak. Just to follow up on Michael's point, you know, th this is particularly relevant today as you think about Russia and Ukraine, um, because obviously the Russian capabilities in this area are, are quite extensive. And I, I, I'd actually take Michael's point, you know, in some ways um, you had, w when atomic bombs and nuclear weapons first developed, people started to see them as sort of bigger artillery shells and bombs. And then by the 50s, they started to think about uh, larger issues of, of deterrence. In 1961, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which probably was a very defining moment in trying to think about the use of nuclear weapons as, as part of, of uh, intimidation and leverage in policy. Depending on what happens with Russia and Ukraine, we could be entering into that space where, again, where if uh, the administration and the West has to think very carefully, as you shut down things in Russia, you have to be aware that Russia might also take efforts back at your infrastructure. And as Michael said, uh, this is kind of sort of virgin territory here. People haven't yet developed the norms and sort of expectations in this space. So this is going to be, I think, a very dangerous area. Uh, as we move forward. And one of the key features of this, of the uh, first Cold War was um, the, the aspect of technology, talent, innovation, and capital in the West, um, really contributing to the economic productivity of the West. And really, um, all in the, the counterpart to that, the absence of those things in the Soviet Union kind of led to its ultimate demise. I think what's happened uh, with the end of the Cold War and subsequent globalization is we've had the, the lion's share of innovation, technology, talent and capital flowing into China for the last 30 years. And I think uh, so one of the things that I think the Biden administration could do to really um, get a leg up on the competition here is really embrace where the world is heading. Um, Russia and China are heading a different direction. And that means that we need to protect our own uh, population from the predations of, of both countries, but more importantly, we need to invest. We need to invest uh, the innovation, technology, talent, and capital of free societies in free societies. And I think in terms of 
what the Biden administration can do to kind of uh, jumpstart this is to really look differently about how we use the resources going into the defense budget. A lot of the defense budget has been devoted to weapon systems that are quite frankly outdated for the competition we find ourselves in. I think we are going to be um, frequently uh, turning toward the deterrence as a way to prevent conflict uh, between um, the great powers uh, as we enter this, what I call a second Cold War. Uh, but more importantly, we're going to need that defense budget to be much more focused on the manufacturing, the science and technology, STEM education part of the competition. And I think if we do that, we, we, we invest more in ourselves and in our allies and partners and collectively we protect our populations from predations. Then I think what you'll see is you'll begin to see the, the benefit that, the, that comes out of that investment start to accumulate for um, free societies. Well, then just, just to build on the general's point, because I think this will be important for Britain's consideration of its participation in AUKUS, is that a lot of the tension has been focused on the submarines. And now that's important. The French thought it was important. Uh, but I think the real payoff for AUKUS will be in terms of some of the other advanced defense technologies. And frankly, you know, this is an area where for understandable reasons, but the United States has been very protective of these, even with our allies. Um, and so if you think about sort of quantum computing and other areas, I think the long-term benefit of AUKUS for all three countries is the combination of this types of research and, and development and outlays. And as the general said, you know, one of our problems is even as we think about deterrence in the Asia Pacific, well, Chinese capabilities would certainly make a lot of platforms like aircraft carriers very vulnerable. You still may need them to project power in some parts of the world, but you're probably going to need a different military posture for anti-access area denial. And at least from what I've seen, the Pentagon's been rather slow at making those steps. Um, and these are the types of investments, whether it's for Britain or for the United States or Australia, that you're going to have to have as a different deterrent strategy uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, really, really interesting answers. There's a, there's a lot there. I, I really appreciate the take on proportionate response um, and also uh, learning from the Cold War and history. So for example, in the UK are, uh, and the US, our efforts on the Falklands uh, crisis with uh, Argentina, a lot of our defenses on our naval ships uh, were massively uh, improved after Falklands, um, and a, a huge overhaul of what was required from the lessons that we learned there. Um, and, and ever evolving from past conflicts is, is a massive lesson to learn on how we, we adapt and respond to future conflicts. So moving on now to the kind of main, main discussion, the main talk of the day is the, the Russian-Ukraine crisis. And really my question is how, how in the contemporary world stage today with all of our past experiences, our previous conflicts, um, how Putin, and also not to mention NATO and everything that NATO is doing, how Putin has managed to escalate this threat um, for the last last few years, um, you know, of war with Ukraine so easily, um, and and where you all think we will end up, because uh, obviously we're getting new updates daily at this point of whether uh, troops on both sides of the border will retreat or not. You know, there's there's all of the skepticism surrounding that, but but where you think we'll end up uh, is this new 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 battle is, is, is forming um, and if war is not for now is it only a really a matter of time that this will be the next the me next crisis for us 
Well, I, I can say that, um, you know, one of the things that is, I think, emboldened Putin uh, has been the lack of unity amongst the allies uh, with regard to how to deal with them. And so uh, really that um, gives him a lot of leverage, he believes, uh, you know, with the with the Western alliance. But I think the other part of this really has to do with the uh, China-Russia relationship. You know, the Biden administration has talked, you know, extensively about the sanctions that will be levied on Russia. But Russia, quite frankly, has an out and that out is China. And yet there's been no talk of how um, a uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine might affect the U.S.-China relationship as China supports Russia in this invasion. So we have to understand that Russia and China are working together and intend to push on the uh, the, the uh, liberal democratic order and see its, quite frankly, see its downfall. And unless we uh, understand that, embrace it, and then begin to look at them together and operating together and, and recognize that uh, where one goes, both goes. And to the extent that we're not willing to, um, you know, inflict pain on both of them con- uh, collectively, that Russia is going to feel emboldened. So it's not just a not just a lack of unity amongst allies. It's a lack of a consistent, um, you know, response that has been that has been telegraphed to both Russia and China for the implications of an invasion of Ukraine. So I think. Uh, to go back to your question, Phoebe, um, I think Putin doesn't want Ukraine to succeed as a democracy and an economy on its border. Um, and while a physical invasion is one option, I think another option was to try to destabilize Ukrainian society. Um, we Over the past 30 years, Ukraine has not been a great success story in terms of civic society and uh, economic uh, sort of reform. Uh, it's had fits and starts, uh, and there was the efforts to sort of reject some of the Russian influence in 2004 and then 2015, but it's still struggled, and President Zelensky is, is struggling with this. Um, and in that sense, I think that uh, given the different attitudes across Europe related to Russia, the Biden administration has done a relatively good job of trying to bring people together. We know where the Poles are, we know where the Balts are, we know where the Romanians are, we know where Britain is. Uh, I, France, of course, wants to chart a certain type of an independent course, but I don't think it fundamentally wants to break. It has views of European security. Germany has been the challenge for historical reasons. I think um, you, you've had a a transition in government that complicates it moving from Merkel to Schultz. Um, but I think that uh, there's been some lessons learned from the Afghanistan departure where the administration spent a lot of time on. I, I think the missing element has been uh, more effort on the economic side. Um, and, and there's some, and let me, let me focus on this in particular. Um, if, if Putin's prime, one option is to destabilize Ukraine. Um, A bigger economic support package, which the United States could do with Canada, which has a large Ukrainian population, the European Union, Britain and others, um, would send a good signal to the Ukrainian people. It seems to be the issue that Zelensky is is most focused on. Um, And in a way it would show Putin that he can't trump the West with the economic card, which is certainly much stronger in our hands uh, than his hands. 
Um, I would do try to do so in a way that tried to draw in some of the multilateral institutions, World Bank, EBRD, IMF, and others. It's a way to show sort of broader international support. And if you did it effectively, you could also try to strengthen the political unity and economic reforms uh, in Ukraine without trying to be too rose-colored glasses about what can be accomplished. There have been there have been improvements. There have been changes. You could uh, put more forward, and without overstating the analogy, in some ways it goes back to the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was designed to offer economic support to draw Western Europe together, actually led to the creation of the Federal Republic of Germany. Um, you could have that sort of concept. I think looking forward, uh, where the rubber's gonna hit the road are two issues. One, uh, the Minsk process, what, uh, which sort of ground to a halt. You know, what will be the status of the eastern part of Ukraine? I think this is at the heart of what Putin wants to accomplish. And for Zelensky, it's very difficult politically to grant the type of autonomy that was at heart of the Minsk agreement. And the second is, what are the statements about uh, Ukraine in NATO? Um, and in my view, the United States made a mistake in 2008. We were in the worst of all worlds. We sort of suggested they were going to come into NATO, but they, we really weren't serious about them coming in. And my own view is, is that you shouldn't make a security commitment unless you're willing to meet it. And I don't think the American public is willing to fight for Ukraine. In which case, we're now in this difficult area where you don't want to concede to Putin the notion that he can sort of bully Ukraine to become sort of a tributary state. On the other hand, do you want to fight a war for something that you're not going to do anyway? And that's going to lead to some very tricky language debate, which you can sort of see going now. So I think that's kind of where we stand in the process. I have not been of the view that Russia would attack during the course of the Olympics. I figured that that would be seen as too much of a slap to China. But uh, as the Olympics sort of winds down, um, you know, and we'll, we'll see those forces look rather threatening to the U.S. intelligence community. So I, I agree. With, I agree with Bob. I mean, I think uh, you know, I don't think we're going to go to war to defend Ukraine, which is not covered by Article Five of NATO, um, and which would be impractical. But I also don't think that Putin is looking to actually invade the whole country and occupy Kiev, because frankly, he would be buying himself a little bit of what the Russians experienced in Afghanistan. What I think he will do is try to destabilize. Maybe there'll be some incursions. Maybe there'll be hybrid warfare, <clears throat> certainly cyber attacks, maybe economic leverage. And the objective here will be to get Zelensky to quit and have the Ukrainians essentially cry uncle and say, we'll, we'll just listen to what uh, Tsar Putin tells us to do. So how do you counterbalance that? I think economic aid, aid in civil society, uh, moral support for the regime can help to counterbalance what Putin is doing. Um, and it also may involve some cyber activity on our part. But I think another thing that was, I think, very wise was the United States sending a number of troops to Poland and Romania, which was a message to Putin, if you're dealing with a non-NATO country, we're not necessarily gonna deploy to defend. But if you step over the line with the NATO outlay, now we're in a different place because we do, we are doubling down on Article 5. And I think that's an important lesson, not to let Putin somehow convey to our actual treaty allies 
that we're not there for them because then that would open up the door to a whole vision of the order of Europe. I also think that the, the US and UK intelligence efforts to point out the possible destabilizing efforts have actually been good. I, I think that uh, in some ways it sort of uh, puts Putin on the back foot on those topics. And the one other thing I would add to what Michael said is I do think we should be providing the means for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. I mean, actually this started in the Trump administration. We pulled back from giving some of the weaponry that I think we should have been giving the Ukrainians. It's one thing for us not to fight and I don't think we're gonna fight, but I do think we should give them the ability to defend themselves. Really, really interesting points about uh, the, the mix between deterrence and then also deploying troops. Um, close to the border to act as a deterrence and also arming uh, Ukraine. And, and I think we've all touched on the point that, that Russia's main aims here is to see the breakdown of Western alliances. So it may not be, uh, as you've all said, all out war, but it will be in other modes uh, to see that breakdown of alliances through soft powers, you know, cyber security, you know, the cyber warfare effectively. And as Michael, have you said, the, the, the change of that kind of battlefield um, warfare, more to hybrid warfare um, in, in, in any other means. Um, my question on, on that then is the, the role that obviously we've seen Biden deploy troops, the role that NATO has to play, and, and going back to that proportionate response, uh, do you think, in very, very quick answers, because I know we're, we're quite short on time, but do you think the proportionate response there of the West, uh, including NATO, has been adequate, or because of this hybrid warfare, um, and our response to cyber terrorism, whether we think that we should be doing something slightly more than what we are currently. Well, you know, I think the uh, the economic, the financial, the trade, the the academic, the political um, aspects of competition are far more important than um, than the military. The military does have a role in terms of preventing com uh, conflict between the major powers. But quite, quite frankly, um, you, we're going to we're entering an area of even more intense competition in those other areas, uh, and the, the connections that we have enabled and established uh, post Cold War um, to enable those uh, institutions of both Russia and China to be uh, really throughout the Western world, I think, is uh, quite problematic going forward, particularly if they continue to be um, uh, militarily aggressive, because they will use these connections in ways that, you know, you know, as I said, you know, get at the social cohesion, political independence and sovereignty of free societies. And so we need to be much better uh, at those areas of competition. We need to protect ourselves and we need to be working with allies and partners to establish um, a framework where competition uh, that promotes prosperity and technological evolution and, uh, and innovation and um, and most importantly, the ideological framework of uh, Western liberal democratic society, I think is important. And, uh, and to the extent that we don't do those things, that I think that uh, the, the Russians and the Chinese are going to have the upper hand. Well, it's been really good speaking to uh, uh, all three of you today, and um, we've discussed uh, a fair few topics. We could probably go on for quite some time still. I know there's, there's lots of stuff that we wanted to talk about, whether it's Afghanistan or uh, approval ratings. 
Um, I want to end on a slightly lighter touch. We, we did this last time uh, where we graded Joe Biden's first 100 days out of 10. Um, I think we all went for around six, if I remember correctly. What would you score it now in terms of its whole year if we're going 10 as uh, the best and one as the lowest? Yeah, I feel a little bit like what Joe and Lai told Henry Kissinger many years ago when asked, what do you think about the revolution? And he said, too soon to tell. Um, I think that although Afghanistan was not well handled, I think, for example, the attack on the ISIS head, which was very cleanly and effectively accomplished with no civilian casualties, I think the movement of the uh, troops into Poland and Romania, I think the efforts to repair our relations with our allies. I mean, I'd be up it to a seven, um, recognizing that we have some serious domestic challenges. Well, you know, I, I agree it's too soon to tell, but I will say that uh, it's not just the Biden administration. Quite frankly, it's a national security establishment of the United States where both sides, uh, the left and the right, come together to establish the principles that will see us successful as a nation and then and then and working with allies and partners going forward and preserving our democracy and democracies of other nations. So um, the intellectual framework for that, quite frankly, is still uh, nascent. Uh, we still need strategic thinkers in the West that are that are considering and thoughtful and understand technology, particularly the way that artificial intelligence is developing, quantum uh, computing. Um, and, and, and the use and misuse of data uh, for, um, for establishing, uh, you know, uh, global narratives that, quite frankly, undermine um, the institutions of the West. So I think this is, uh, this is uh, something that I am encouraged that I see the beginnings of, you know, expertise and, and thoughtfulness coming out of, uh, of that process. But I, I think we have a long ways to go. So to round it out, um, since this is from a service, uh, party audience, I think I'd come back to the domestic challenge. I think one of the things that threw the Biden administration off was when the Republicans lost the two Senate seats in Georgia and it became a 50-50 Senate. Uh, the Biden administration and their Democratic supporters in Congress felt they had a vast majority, which they didn't. <laughs> and so I think they made a number of legislative missteps on the assumption that they could get a lot of things through that they, could, they didn't get through. And um, I think this has stymied some of the things that we do need to do uh, on, on the home front. Uh, to be equally uh, sort of critical, I think the Republican Party, uh, which I've been in a number of elections and campaigns and recounts, uh, has to face the fact that when you lose an election, you lose an election um, and not willing to face up to that fact uh, from the 2020 election, I think hinders our democracy as fundamental as anything else. On the international side, um, I think the alliance relations have been improved, particularly after some of the parts that they suffered for the reasons that we've all talked about. Um, I'm concerned about the international economic uh, ties, as I mentioned. And frankly, going back to some of these ideas of technology, traditionally, because the United States was a cutting edge economy, we use these agreements to try to set standards um, for the world. We haven't been doing that. Um, and until we start to do that, whether it's in data or digital or other services industries, 
uh, you're going to be behind in the competition. You're not sort of sitting at the table. Um, so for those reasons, um, I guess I'd say sort of five to six, but incomplete. So we've got seven from Mr. Shertoff, five to six from Mr. Zulik. General Sporting. No, I, 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 can, I concur with the five to six. Okay. But, but Chertoff has always been an easy grader. It's, it was yeah. always <laughs> well, you know, Harvard grade inflation. <laughs> well, it's been, it's been great having uh, you all on our, on, our, on our panel today. And, you know, who knows, hopefully we can do this again. Maybe we'll review the, the, the second year when we have a, uh, even more um, of, of the Biden administration. But yeah, thank you for your time today. And um, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you.